Welcome to a new series of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. My name is Lucy Dawkins, and in these episodes, I've been chatting to the company's artistic directors, Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, about their work in the theatre. And in this series, we're answering your questions. fine Lucy. So we're taking a slightly new direction in these next few episodes of the podcast and we're answering some questions which listeners have put to us. So we're going to kick off today with a really great question that's been put to us about how you deal with verse because the vast majority of the work that you do happens to be in verse. You love working with verse plays and what I find really amazing about watching your productions is that all of the actors speak verse in a way which sounds like it's completely normal speech. I find that kind of miraculous in watching Cheap by Jail shows. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. Um, in a way, I think it is um, completely normal speech. One of the things we have to watch in life is where the goalposts are set. And one of the extremely important things, political things you have to sort out, is where the goalposts of normal are set. Now, uh, I think a lot of our world is, faced, is based on a, a basic lie or, a, or something that's very misleading, which in, is that there's a sort of normal world of prose communication, such as I'm chatting to you now, not much particular interest in the beat, not much particular interest in the imagery. But then when we do a play by Shakespeare or Calderon or um, Sophocles, that you have to kind of build yourself up to a level, as if normal speech is uh, of prose is sort of ordinary and normal, and then there's this add-on luxury thing of verse and, and, and the poetry that, that very often implies. Um, I think this is really, really, really dangerous, and it's an intrinsic lie of our civilization. It goes way beyond theater. The thing is, who gets to say what's normal? But I think that the interior of our brains, I think the interior of our minds, the interior of ourselves, hasn't really got very much to do with this world of um, prose words at all. That our interiority is much more to do with epic, verse, imagery, poetry. And I I think our most intimate thoughts are nothing to do with prose at all. And in fact, you have to continually translate into prose. So really, I think, as I said before, I think when we speak to each other, we are using a form of Google Translate and the original language is much more to do with verse and poetry than we understand. So that when I do a verse play, I think I'm going back to something that's more atavistic in which the dramatists allowed people on stage to speak to each other in a way that's much more to do with the interior of their minds that our interior minds are much more to do with this world of verse and poetry and music and dance and all of those things that we come to way before we start inventing words. So I find this really useful as a way of thinking about verse plays, to think it's not that we have to somehow translate prose into verse, we have to find that way of stepping up into verse, but actually that verse is something that's really common to the way that we experience ourselves in the world and is about giving ourselves permission to go back into verse in many ways. Yes. Um, Basically, people often say it has to be heightened to go into a verse world. I think that's a very mistaken way of looking at it. I think, if anything, we have to invent a lowered sort of way of looking at things to go into the world of realism. I keep banging on in these episodes about the fact that there is nothing real about realistic. In fact, I'd almost say realistic is a defense against the real. That what's real in terms of our internal experience, I think, is much more to do with verse and poetry and images and dance and song. And so that said, 
dealing with verse yeah. is like playing an instrument. It requires some technical skill. And a lot of that's to do with understanding how you deal with beat and with rhythm and with breath. And the question that we have about verse today is quite a technical one. Um, and it comes from um, a, an actor and a voice teacher called Patrick Clavins, um, who says he'd love to hear your opinions on Shakespearean verse, specifically looking at lined endings and enjambements. So line endings are the idea that the line comes to the end on every 10th beat, because Shakespeare write, writes an iambic pentameter. And enjambement is when the thought runs over the end of that line and goes into the next line. And Patrick refers to uh, the great late director Peter Hall, who always prioritised the metre and form of Shakespeare, the idea that you should breathe or pause at the end of that verse line. And he says he's been wrestling with this as an actor and a voice teacher about whether an actor should adhere to this quite traditional way of playing Shakespeare or whether the line should run over in order to preserve the length and sense of the thought. What is your approach to this? Well, thank you, Lucy. Before I start to answer that question, I have to register quite strongly my sense of intense discomfort trying to answer a question like that, because it's as if I've got to enter into that playing field. I mean, all this technical talk really worries me. But we got into this position because we love rules. We love rules. Um, we, and we don't like to think we love rules. That's the really embarrassing thing about being a human being. I just keep thinking of when the um, monarchy was restored in Spain after Na Napoleon had um, brought the revolution to Spain and finally the um, old Spanish dynasty was restored. And um, the people yelled in approval and were shouting the chant, Vivan las Cainas. Vivan las Cainas means long live the chains. So we love rules. We love rules. We love obeying rules and we love making other people obey rules. We love them. It just always makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't much like giving rules about things. But the most important thing that I think I can say is that um, I think it's fatal ever to stop at the end of a line. And it's deadening. It's absolutely completely deadening. And you lose the flow. But what is to be said is that, that there is a, a, an exchange of energy that happens at the end. I'd, I think it, rather than a full stop, you should think about it as being a change of direction and that something interesting happens between the last word of every line and the first stressed syllable of the new line. And we have many exercises we've evolved over the years in Cheap by Jail to get actors walking on the beat, touching the wall with the flat of their hand on the last word of the line and then turning on a point to the other wall for the first stress syllable of the next, an extraordinary acceleration, a new pulse of energy happens. Now, how the actor interprets that is entirely down to the actor. What I found really interesting about this point about the first stress syllable mm. of the next line yes. is it's the same idea, which mm. is noticing where the where the line ends, where the the yes. end of that iambic pentameter is. But almost your advice is don't pause, find the turn that accelerates you into the next line. There, it is. The same idea, the verse is there, the line end is there to help you do something, but it's not a stop. It's almost like the next hurdle on a roller coaster that takes you down. Exactly right. And you have to find the acceleration that goes into the new thought. And it has to actually, the seed of it has to be in a way within that rhyme, the last word that's got to take you into the new idea, because nothing that we say works. And the problem with rather perfect verse forms is that it's like what I said worked. You think, no, it didn't. Nothing works. If, if, if what you said worked, you wouldn't need to say something else, would you? That's basically how speech works. That everything we say is a failure and we go into the next thing. 
So say you're Juliet and you're saying in the balcony scene and you're saying to Romeo, thou knowst the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush but paint my cheek. Now, the last words in those two lines are face and cheek. And we need to do the last word exercise that we just say the words to ourselves. And when you put them together, they become quite magical. They become a kind of underpoem. So those are the last words in every single line that pop out at the end of yeah. the iambic pentameter line. So shall I read out those last last words? I've sure, got right here. why not, yeah. So we've got face, cheek, tonight, deny, compliment, I, swearest, perjuries, Romeo, faithfully, one, nay, world, fond, light, true, strange, confess, where, me, love, discovered. And you can hear it. This is a speech about love and uh, a promise and a fear of betrayal and death. Well, all sorts of masses of death in the balcony scene. I mean, it sometimes occurs to me that Romeo and Juliet are the progenitors of Lord and Lady Macbeth, that um, they're another couple who love each other, who basically kill each other. They don't look after each other. Um, but the seas of our death are there right from the beginning. That through the whole scene, you'll see this extraordinary pattern of death imagery emerging, normally through that last word exercise. And in a way, it, it's not good to make it into a poem to analyse. It's good to make it into a poem to let the poem haunt us. Because I don't think understanding things is always the best idea. Letting ourselves be haunted by a work of art is probably the best thing. And these, these words just come together and they take us into another world where we're not quite in control, where Julia's not quite in control. Because I suppose if we were to read this out with the version which is leave a pause after the end of the line, mm. it does sound unnatural, right? Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush but paint my cheek. For that which thou hast heard me speak tonight, no one speaks like that. We don't break up our, our thoughts like that. It doesn't sound alive. Yes, but there's another set of words which are the first stressed syllables of each line. It's actually the interval of time between the last word and that first stressed syllable. And something happens in that time, which means that the actor should change direction. If you do, you'll find a whole new um, pocket of energy there where you least expect to find it. But... My warning is this, do not try to find the pocket of energy in the big last words, cheek, face, etc, etc. Those are the words that people tend to want to paint, and they want to have a good old emote on those words. My advice is, please let them look after themselves, say them, by all means, feel them, by all means, but don't indulge them. The thing that you need to look after is that boring little first stress syllable, because that's the key to the whole thing. So that said, let's think about this first stressed beat and how useful it can be in every line. So if we look at this, this pair of lines that you've brought up, thou knowst the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush but paint my cheek. So we've heard the version where you would put a pause in, the old traditional way. But you're saying the most interesting place is that first stress beat in the next line, which is would. Thou knowst the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush but paint my cheek. For that which thou hast heard me speak tonight, fain would I dwell on form, fain, fain deny. Exactly. But that's, that's of course, <laughs> that's good to sketch out the form. It's for the actor to make it alive. Yeah. But that is the basic schema. And so this, I suppose, relates to a much bigger question about breath. Again, this kind of traditional way of speaking the verse in Shakespeare suggests that the breath should come at the end of the line. 
but you have quite different thoughts about breath. Well, my big thought about breath is we shouldn't think about it in a way while we're acting, in fact. If the actor ever has to think, should I be breathing here? We've already gone very much wrong. I think a very good exercise that the actor can do is to try and see how many words the actor can say on one breath, just just to start like that, to see how many words you can, you can go to, um, and increase that number every day. To try and see how um, long you can keep that slow exhalation of the breath. The reason is because we breathe naturally on the thought. So what I'm saying is breath is unbelievably important. The breath is more important than the word. That's what I've said. The breath is more important than the word. And I've, I've said before, if you can't breathe it, you can't play it. So take the breathing really, really seriously. So it sounds like what you're saying is, the actor needs to be able to train their breath to have to know that they've got enough bellows in their lungs to get through big and complex thoughts because we don't naturally tend to breathe until we've reached the end of a thought. And a lot of characters in Shakespeare tend to have really long thoughts, right? Yeah, but when the stakes go up, we all do. So it's amazing what can happen when we're under stress. I mean, Lucy, if a lion ran into this room now, I know you're much fitter than I am, but I swear to you, I could probably outrun you. <laughs> I could run so bloody fast. <laughs> it went under threat very, very fast indeed. The difference between me and you is that tomorrow I wouldn't be able to move, and you'd probably be absolutely fine. Now, some people might say, oh, but, you know, these things happen in real life, and we haven't got tra- people don't train for their breaths in real life. I say, no, they don't. But then they don't get to move after they've been chased by the lion either, like me. But the app's kind of got to do that over and over and over again. So you need to train that breath so you don't damage yourself. Because, in a way, to have that long breath comes naturally to us when the stakes go up. My point is you do not have a choice to do shallow breathing when the stakes go high. Your body simply won't let you do it. So you have to be very, very well prepared for it. And I'd say it's the only technical thing that you need to do when you do verse place, when you do Shakespeare. You have to make sure you've got masses of oxygen in your body and that you don't start running out. So I think it's a really good idea for the actors to do their text running, see how many words that they can get out, and all on that one breath. You have to let your breath out very, very slowly over a long period of time. And very often it's quite lamentable watching somebody playing a very dangerous situation. They think they can just do it. They mistakenly think they just have a facility to just turn it on. And you don't. It's the breath that gives you away. That's how we can tell when people are lying. There are all sorts of modern technological advances. We think, oh, that's amazing, like the polygraph. And actually, if you examine them, we've always had them. That's why you have juries. And if you're really attuned to other people, you can tell when they're not telling the truth because you'll detect changes in heartbeat and you'll detect changes in breathing. We are naturally hypervigilant to these things. And you can tell that when you're listening to people acting, that sometimes you don't believe and sometimes you do. Absolutely. And so when we're looking at this Juliet speech, for example, it does sound weird to put a pause after that face at the end of that first line. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't sound human to talk like that because she hasn't reached the end of a thought. No, but also the important thing is to understand how we think. Thoughts are... in terrible competition with each other and particularly when we get excited it's always a question of interruption and you know if you're having a drink with friends and you're remembering some funny thing that happened they'll start interrupting each other frantically the new thought always tries to slay the old thought because the new thought thinks it's more important than the old thought yes they are in competition with each other that's how we live and so every single thought in the speech is being usurped by the next thought 
And in terms of what that does to your breath, you're trying to breathe out the thought and then take enough, snatch enough air in for the next thought to take over. And that that's actually really alive and organic. And thinking of breathing really regularly at the end of every line interrupts that live wire energy that happens when you let the thoughts dictate the breath rather than the form. It's total death. And it's where Vivan Laskainas gets us. We just love the bloody rules because then I've got it right. But there is no right. But what I find really useful about this whole approach is you're not saying, therefore, ignore all of this information that Shakespeare's giving us by arranging this as a verse form. He's popping words out at the end of the line that help us understand the images of the speech. He's giving us that second stress syllable that accelerates your breath and your thought and gives you even more energy. So you're not saying ignore all of these formalistic things. It's just think of them as energetic offers rather than rules that are restricting how you can say it. Yes. What I'd really advise you to do, um, if you want to do verses, to write your own verse, to write your own blank verse. Um, if I get bored watching a movie, um, I, I often try and see how many lines actually go into blank verse. It's quite amazing how many do. And once you do like three or four lines together, you'll find that naturally um, the last word is the most interesting word and that the steering first syllable of the new line becomes it naturally. It's not like Shakespeare's a super genius. It's quite possible Shakespeare wouldn't know what I was talking about because it just it was something that was so ingrained into him that it came, it came naturally to him. I think a good image to think about is that of jazz, which is jazz is about syncopation. But in order to syncopate, you have to have something to syncopate against. What we sometimes forget in jazz is that there is actually a very, very regular, quite boring beat, um, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, going on all the time. And the jazz musician, the jazz singer, is syncopating against that imagined beat. And you may never once hear that regularly, but it will be there. The rule has to be there to be broken. Otherwise, there's no energy. And that's why in verse, you have to imagine the regular beat because you might always be syncopating. And I think that's the other wonderful thing to notice is that Shakespeare actually breaks the iambic pentameter much more than he sticks to it in general. There's usually an extra beat on the end of the line, a weird break in the middle of the line, a moment where a line is suddenly all monosyllables and everything slows down. So the iambic pentameter is only really there for you to play against, right? It's, a, it's an expectation that you can break. It gives you surprise to play with. Yes, it's an expectation to be broken. And he gets more used to playing with that more and more outrageously as he matures as, as, as a writer. And so I always love hearing you talk about verse and seeing you support actors with verse in rehearsal rooms because it becomes less about the verse being a prison or the verse being a structure that we have to somehow make this play live inside. And more like the verse is a series of offers, a series of stimuli for your imagination and your breath and your body that is only going to propel you through the scene. It's almost like use the verse as a starting point for exploration. Don't try and fit yourself into the verse. Well, it depends, yes. We do need rules and then we have to syncopate against them. You can't lose too much sight of the rules, but you can't obey them too much either. So, you know, always we have to be developing our common sense so that we can answer the big question no one wants to answer, which is how much is enough? And the answer is, that depends. And no one wants to hear that answer. But it's the only um, honest answer. So you do need to know some technical information about iambic pentameter. You need to know about line endings. You need to know about the beats. 
Uh, you need to know how it's structured, but only so you can break the rules, right? Learning of rules in general is quite um, an ambivalent thing. I think very often you need to learn them in order to break them. You can't just break them without knowing what they are. So one has to go a bit careful there. You can't do whatever you like. You need to know kind of what should be before you can propose something that isn't that. That's my advice. The important thing is that you only need to know so much and then your common sense will um, tell you everything else. And basically your body knows more than you do. You might have to train your body, but your body still probably knows more than you do. Fantastic. So that's our answer for Patrick. Thank you so much for your question. Trust your common sense. And we're going to be joining again next week to answer more questions from listeners. And in the meantime, thank you very much, Declan. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for listening and to all of you who've posted us questions. If you'd like to hear more gems about theatre from Declan and Nick, you'll find many more seasons of this podcast on the Cheek by Jell website or wherever you get your podcasts. The music you're hearing now was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheek by Jell's production of Three Sisters. Join us next week as we answer more questions from listeners. Listeners.